0: If you think the mating rituals at your local singles bar are strange, <laughs> wait till you get a load of black widow spiders. She's the First black of all, widow she mates and then she kills, right? Here comes her victim now. I don't often talk her. about true Let's crime, see. but when I do, it's usually because it's a case that She's I'm really interested in. Something about it just stuck with me. One such case is that of Jill Coit, who committed her crimes right here in Colorado. The murder of a prominent businessman in Colorado was particularly difficult to solve since the killer has left virtually no forensic evidence. Now, although this happened some time ago, the trope of a black widow murderer is still alive and well. People are so fascinated to understand why these women would go around and not only widow themselves, you know, kill their husbands, but continue to do so multiple times. Like in the case of Kelly Cochran, for example, she and her husband killed her boyfriend, then she turned around and killed her husband too. Like why? Why go through all that effort faking love and intimacy and care for someone multiple times? Quote, these black widows named after the desert spiders whose deadly female often eats their partner after sex, act out their anger, sociopathic tendencies, or desire for financial gain by killing their husbands and boyfriends, or in Cochran's case, both. It's the fake attention that really seems to shock so many. I mean, while killing people alone is pretty horrific, and of course it's a literal crime against humanity, there's something especially disturbing about those who will fake such a deep emotion like love for someone, only to betray them in the worst way imaginable. It's why these women are often seen as sociopathic and why these cases are so disturbing. Also just an opinion here, but I also think it has to do with outdated tropes, Women are often seen as more nurturing and caring than men. Therefore, to see a lovely, caring woman marrying men and killing them, it just goes against every stereotype. This idea of secretly charming a man only to kill them is pretty upsetting, it's pretty gross. But if this were the only thing happening in this particular Black Widow type case, I don't know if I'd cover it. Instead, Jill Coit's situation is particularly unique. And today on this episode of Dark Dives, we're going to dig into why that is and see how her murders in particular impacted others that followed. So let's get into it. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters. And, what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So we'll go ahead and start with, I think the obvious question. Who exactly is Jill Coit? Well, to start, she was born Jill Lonita Bilia in Louisiana in 1943. And when she was just 15 years old, she moved to Indiana to live with her grandparents. She was a pretty girl and the boys liked her accent and looks, so Jill was pretty popular at a young age. Quote, if you were to meet her and talk to her, you'd think she's just the greatest person you ever met. One ex-husband, Carl Steely, told the LA Times. Why would all these people marry her if she wasn't that way? One of the first boys that caught Jill's interest was Larry Eugene Echnin. I'm not sure how far apart in age they were as sources don't seem to detail it, but Jill ran away with Larry all the same, dropping out of high school to get married at just 17 years old. This didn't last long because let's be real, 17 just, isn't really emotionally mature enough for marriage. One year later, Jill was divorced. Her first marriage was over before even making it to the one-year mark. Another source added that Larry was only a year older, meaning he was 18 when they were married. Murderpedia, because that's also a source which is a very cool name, they also added that back in the 1960s, it mattered to whom the divorce was granted. Basically, this was before no-fault divorces existed and you needed to have a fault or a reason to separate. In this case, Larry was granted the divorce based on cruel and inhumane treatment. No details on what that might be, but Jill, tired of working in a factory, decided to finish her diploma and head to college at Northwestern State University. For a short while, Jill seemed focused on her studies. At least she wasn't really getting married. But three years later, when she was around 21-ish years old, she met Stephen Moore and was married once again, perhaps believing that she'd grown up a bit and found the right guy for her. Now. Here's the thing that I do wanna emphasize. I don't think Jill can, by any stretch of the imagination, be called an evil black widow at this point in time. Various articles seem to insinuate that she's always been a psychopath of sorts, but at least when she married her second husband, it was still really hard to tell if she genuinely had feelings for him or not. And obviously I cannot and do not want to be in Jill's head. And I don't know what's the truth or, you know, not, but she surely didn't benefit much from marrying a fellow college student, having a son with him, then leaving shortly after her son's birth. The first two marriages seem innocent enough is all I'll really say. Unfortunately, marriage three is where things started to get just a bit iffy. See, it's around this time that Jill started to find work as a model, And she caught the eye of a prosperous engineer or gas pipeline worker. It's not clear which, but the guy's name was William Clark Coit. And this is where things became a bit murky and a little bit deadly. Jill and William hit it off right away. He was 35 years old while Jill was only 22, but the age gap and her son, Stephen Jr. didn't bother him. Jill hadn't even technically divorced husband number two by this point, but William was smitten. She officially filed for divorce in August 1965 and married William a year later, becoming Jill Coit, the surname we know her as to this day. But this time, the relationship didn't sour after a year and with Jill running off to find another man. Instead, Stephen Moore Jr.'s name was changed to Jonathan Seth Coit. William adopted him as his own and Jill's second son, William Jr., was born. And if we're gonna be technical, Technically, her son was William III as her husband was William II, but for simplicity's sake, we're just gonna call him William Jr. Also, as a brief aside here, I think it's also a little bit messed up to change your child's name after you get a divorce. Like the whole first name part, you know? Like I get it, the kid is a kid, but like the kid is used to being called Steven and all of a sudden now the kid is called Jonathan. I'm just saying it's a little bit weird, but anyway. I understand that things between her and Steven soured, but it's not as if she was pregnant and decided against it. I don't know. It's not the craziest thing I've seen someone do, but it does strike me as a little bit odd. Regardless, Jill moved on from Stephen and seemed happy with her husband, William, and her sons, now Jonathan Seth and William Clark. But things didn't stay that way for long, unfortunately. As her husband was a businessman traveling around, Jill continued her own escapades, running around with men, as a source puts it. She allegedly started bragging about her sexual escapades, flaunted her affairs, and William Sr. had enough. He accused her of only marrying him for money. And in 1972, after her longest relationship yet, another divorce was filed. Again, up until now, this seems relatively normal. I don't know how often divorces were really being had, but there was nothing super fishy going on. I'm not saying that what she did was okay, but like clearly she was just kind of bouncing around from guy to guy and probably could have used a therapist to figure out why she married someone only to treat them so terribly. But I don't know, maybe that wasn't an option at the time. Ultimately, a divorce seemed like the best option for the two, but they never really did get divorced at all because just a few weeks after filing, William vanished. According to friends, he'd withdrawn a hefty sum of money that quote, Jill can't get her hands on. So it seemed like the perfect motive. If Jill really had married William for his money and now the marriage was over, then this was her last resort to get something back, perhaps. But then if that's the case, why not just take it through the court system? Surely as a single mom, she would have been able to have sympathy with the judge. And as the source says, she ultimately filed for divorce, not him. So why file at all then? Some say it's hard to tell and detectives couldn't get any answers either. Murderpedia claims, quote, Detectives found her in New Orleans with an attorney on retainer to fight any possible extradition. And to further ensure her stay in NOLA, she committed herself to a mental facility with claims of acute hysteria and emotional distress. The homicide of Clark Coyt went cold and the new widow inherited all of his estate. Now, this was always fishy. And in the years that followed, articles have always presented her third husband's death as suspicious. He was shot twice by an intruder, supposedly. And while I don't wanna say that it's a total lie, now that the world knows Jill is capable of murder, it's understandable that this home invasion case is viewed under a cloud of doubt. But if law enforcement thought they had a solid case, why not doggedly pursue it? Why give up because Jill was in a mental facility? After all, it's not like she stayed there for a long period of time either. And when she was released, she was seemingly up to no good again. About a year after her third husband passed away, Jill was at it again. This time, she met a wealthy retiree named Bruce Johansson. Apparently, she convinced him to adopt her and legally make her his daughter. Little bizarre, right? But he was in his 90s, so when he passed away, she had claimed his estate. She was definitely providing for herself and her sons, but the way that she was going about it is extremely questionable, to put it lightly. Also, just to note, some sources say she actually had two sons with William and had three children by this point, not entirely sure, but regardless, she was dragging her children along with her during this wild ride. But while this strange sugar daddy relationship blossomed, Jill also found herself a fourth husband, Marine Corps Major Donald Bordy. Allegedly, this relationship didn't work out the way Jill hoped, as he didn't allow her to manage the household. But this didn't deter her from trying to manipulate him though, even after they separated. she claimed to have delivered a son on October 18, 1974 and named him Thaddeus John Brody. But the major was smarter than the other men in Jill's past and didn't so easily believe this story. Not even when Jill presented him with an infant. Later, it was learned that Jill had paid people to borrow their baby for a few hours. And these were the infants she had tried to use to squeeze child support out of husband number four. Fortunately, it didn't work. Now, for whatever it's worth, I'm not sure that I'd use the word smarter here. I don't think that the men in Jill's past were stupid. They may have been vulnerable and simply wanted to believe her, whereas Donald Brody was a bit more aware of her scheming. Either way, it didn't work, and this shows how far Jill was willing to go for money. Again, even though I can't say that she harmed her third husband, it's pretty clear that she was greedy and preferred to swindle others instead of working hard. Seriously, like convincing a 90 something year old man to adopt you, lying about having a baby, borrowing a baby from another couple, which I didn't, when was that a thing that became okay? Like all of this is just insanely messed up. Whatever she got from the passing of her third husband and from the death of her so-called sugar daddy clearly wasn't enough for her. And she was willing to commit some pretty heinous acts for more. Things continued devolving from this point. Jill ended up with Luis de Rosa, the attorney that handled her adoption. They married in 1976, but again, and unsurprisingly, it didn't last. When they were separated, she married Eldon Metzger, but Jill's divorce from Luis hadn't been recognized by the US, she obtained it in Haiti for some reason. This made her a bigamist, but not for long because she and Metzger didn't last either. Then Jill and Lewis supposedly got back together for a little bit after she and Metzger fell apart, but they ended up legally divorcing for good in 1985. So yeah, it's a little bit of a whirlwind. And I truly want to stress is like out of all of this was that she was dragging her children through all of this. Her kids saw their mother traveling all over the country for and with these men, always having a different father figure and little stability in their lives. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that these boys never should have moved and Jill should have remained in an unhappy marriage, but their well-being didn't seem to be remotely anywhere near any sort of priority list. When you consider the lies and manipulations she conjured throughout these relationships, it's clear that her kids weren't exactly her greatest concern, money was, and it was about to push her over the edge. Jill married in 1983, again, this marriage actually did last quite some time, almost a decade, and Jill effectively used this new husband, Carl, as a handyman. She wanted a bed and breakfast, told him that she listed him on the deed, but she only put her and her eldest son's name on it. This was the most ability that this family had for some time too, but again, it didn't last. Enter a new man, Jerry Boggs. Now, they're isn't a lot of information up to this point, but once Boggs enters the picture, there are far more reports and you're about to see why. See, when Jill and Boggs were married, she hadn't exactly been truthful about how many times she had been married. Still, they seem to once again hit it off. Her, the pretty bed and breakfast owner, he who ran the local hardware store, they seemed to get along well. And not too long after that, you guessed it, they were married. She even claimed to be pregnant with his child maybe to, you know, help speed the process along. After all, Jill was almost 50 years old at this point with eight previous husbands. She wasn't exactly a, you know, young spry egg anymore and she wasn't a new mom, but she still claimed to be much younger and with a much shorter dating history. Had Boggs known, he may not have fallen head over heels as quickly, but Boggs did get suspicious over time. Jill wasn't pregnant because, you know, she had a hysterectomy. Hell, she wasn't even single. She technically never divorced Carl or someone else who really knows at this point, honestly. Boggs hired a private detective and when the truth came crumbling down, he annulled the marriage that never should have happened in the first place. But this wasn't how things played out in Jill's book. Honestly, looking at her background, it seems like no one had held her accountable before. Boggs was different in that way because he knew the truth. Jill seemingly had no shame about the ordeal and was already getting with telephone line repairman, Michael Backus, when the marriage was annulled, but she continued fighting Boggs for his money. I think it's pretty clear, at least to me and the rest of the town, that she had absolutely no right to his money, but that didn't deter Jill so easily. She left the town of Steamboat Springs to lay low for a while and ended up marrying Roy Carroll, a retired Navy Petty Officer in Las Vegas the following year. But the rumors continued to follow Jill, some saying that she never actually properly divorced Bacchus, if she even married him in the first place, because that's also not very clear. Regardless, she did eventually find herself in Bogstown again alongside Bacchus. Only this time it wasn't to get married and swindle her new husband. Jill hadn't let go of husband number nine and she wanted his wealth. So on October 22nd, 1993, one week before Jill and Boggs' civil hearing, Boggs was found shot and beaten to death in his home. Jill was immediately seen as the prime suspect as recordings of her threats on his answering machine were missing. And that doesn't sound like something a typical robber would take. Of course, Jill denied the whole thing and said that Boggs was closeted and gay and the cops should look into his lover, which again, even if that was true and Box was gay, it was obvious to anyone with half a brain that Jill had the most motive out of anybody. But here's the really weird part. There really wasn't much physical evidence to actually link Jill to the crime. Instead, what became the most important part of this case was testimony from a very unlikely source, and that was her son. I think she was more or less motivated on the money. I think she thought that would make her happy in life. And look where she is. So apparently money can't buy you ever- And this is actually why I find this case so interesting. It's the fact that Jill's son is really the one that turned her in for murdering her ninth husband. He was truly sick of his mother's lies and of her hurting other people by the sounds of it. After all, he had grown up witnessing her manipulations. He witnessed all of her threats. And on the night of the murder, Jill supposedly called her son and told him, quote, "'Hey baby, it's over and it's messy.'" I hugely commend her son for his bravery in speaking out and testifying against his own mother. Without Seth, I'm not sure this would have been possible. Jill and Bacchus were both convicted, though that isn't totally where our story ends because that would be too easy, obviously. Jill Coit and Michael Bacchus were arrested and charged with first-degree murder. At the preliminary hearing, it appeared even Jill was impressed with the forensic evidence- against Jill and Backus were both sentenced to life in prison and even given a giant fine of $1 million. And it was more or less put in place so that they could never profit with books or movie deals. Like seriously, I think this needs to happen more often. I wholeheartedly approve of this decision. But Jill wasn't done there. She tried to place personal ads online, basically advertising herself as a free green card to anyone that wanted to marry her. And when that plan backfired, Jill tried to gain money by claiming she'd been abused. Quote, on October 22, 2002, Jill appealed to the people of Colorado with an online editorial. She called for an investigation into abuse and human rights violations against her that occurred while incarcerated. Jill claimed that she had been denied use of her therapeutic braces for her back and both hands in which she suffers arthritis. She also alleged that she was sexually abused and had her finger broken by a guard. She alleged similar things in 2006, but she largely hasn't been believed. It seems more or less like another way to try and make money, but Jill was moved to a different prison under an alias. Again, I could be wrong, and I don't want to say that Jill is lying or not. I really have no way of knowing. But what we do know is that Jill has spent the vast majority of her life as a manipulator and a liar. And now because, you know, she got convicted of murdering someone, she's going to spend the rest of her life in prison. But with all of that being said, that's where we're going to end today's episode of Dark Dives. I hope you enjoyed it and learned something new today. And if you did, make sure that you're liking, following and subscribing to stay up to date with all the latest episodes. As always, thank you so much for joining me. I really do appreciate it. And I'll see you in the next one. Bye.